This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Middle Eastern Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am grateful to be in dialogue with Dr. Tyler Brand. He is Assistant Professor of Near and Middle Eastern Studies at Trinity College, Dublin. We will be discussing his newly published book, Famine Worlds, Life at the Edge of Suffering in Lebanon's Great War published in Palo Alto by Stanford University Press 2023. Tyler, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. It's great for you to have me. It's good to meet you too, Ari. Thank you. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired your scholarly journey? Yeah, um, I was originally born in Phoenix, Arizona, and um, went to school at the University of Arizona um, in Tucson. And, you know, while I was there, I developed a keen interest in history and particularly eventually Middle Eastern history. Um, I decided to get my PhD at the American University of Beirut. Um, and from there, I've you know, pretty much been, you know, enmeshed with the region ever since. Um, I'd say one thing that really kind of pushed me out was you know, the desire to get out and kind of experience new things. But also, um, the one of my professors was from Lebanon. And so several projects that we'd worked on um, that, you know, kind of pulled me into Lebanese history um, and everything else kind of, you know, flowed from there. What inspired you to write this book? What story does your book tell? This book was almost an accident. Um, so initially I'd intended to do something more on environmental history of, you know, the famine. Um, I had a great interest in disease, disaster, and things like that, you know, going back into my undergraduate years. And in this particular case, I had intended to do something based upon some of the archival findings I had at American University of Beirut's um, the old uh, observatory. Um, however, when I started writing this, um, this is in the you know, kind of 2011 to 2015, and things had begun unraveling in Beirut as a result of the ongoing you know, kind of beginnings of the civil war in Syria. We had a flood of refugees coming into the streets, um, and I started to rethink about the, what sort of things might be important in times of crisis. Um, the environment is something that's so detached from humanity, and the humanitarian catastrophe that I saw the street around me really seemed like the important things, you know, in the events that I was looking at. And so I began looking deeper into my sources to try to find that sort of personal experience of crisis. And I hope that my book brings that out. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? I'd like them to understand, I think, the nuance of life in times of crisis. And we do have a bit of experience with that, unfortunately, now after the pandemic. Uh, I think if I, when I was giving, you know, discussions of this back prior to 2020, 
um, it seemed very abstract to a lot of people. Um, I think nowadays, because we've experienced times of crisis, we've experienced it in a very personal sort of way, and we understand the nuances of it. Um, I'm hoping that this has a bit more of a personal sort of um, impact, because a lot of the things I write about in the book are very personal. Um, I talk about people, I talk about their own experiences of life, and the things that are kind of hidden beneath the headlines in major disaster events. Um, I hope people understand really that it's not just the big picture things that matter, but rather the little things underneath those big things. Can you summarize your book for us? What are the primary themes? Can you give us a bit of a synopsis? Yeah. Um, so the book progresses through a sort of basic understanding of what happens in the famine initially, and then moves on to you know, how these kind of larger events reflect down onto the lower levels, um, be they social levels in terms of things like the economic developments, um, and then, of course, how those economic developments affect individuals. And through each of my chapters, it gets a bit more granular. Um, you move on to things like, say, death, how widespread catastrophe leads to kind of like the broad access to death for everyone throughout society, and how the volume of death and the volume of suffering then begins to change how people experience their lives and look out at the world around them. Um, and you know, by the end, I really want to get down to the sort of individual level, you know, how people deal with crisis in their daily lives and how also they you know, use their own reflections upon their experience to understand the world around them. You know, as all of us saw during the COVID pandemic, you can't experience a, a massive, traumatic, terrible event like that and come out of it the same person on the other side. Um, so in the end, the book kind of works you through these sort of kind of like broader based questions to working down to the individual level and to try to understand people's personal experiences and how they came out of it different. Did you experience any vicarious trauma in the course of your research process? Why or why not? Yeah, it was. it's an interesting question. And I've had some discussions with historians who completely reject the idea that one can be vicariously traumatized by something that took place in the past. Um, I think that this isn't necessarily the case. I mean, um, no. Dominic LeCapra has talked about this in his discussions of the Holocaust. You know, when you talk about traumatic events, you can't, you know, understand them without confronting the notion of trauma. And it's sometimes difficult to really understand what this really means. Um, you know, the trauma I experienced, you know, say, perhaps experiencing, like, say, seeing someone on the streets of Beirut, you know, a Syrian woman with a baby, you know, skeletal in her arms is something that is visceral and something that I experienced firsthand. Um, I didn't experience her trauma, but something that reflected onto me. It's a little bit different when you're looking at something on the page, but as humans, we naturally empathize, and it's it's sometimes difficult not to allow that sort of thing to affect you. Um, I was reading about one source, and it was a truly terrible discussion. Um, a, a woman had you know walked across Mount Lebanon to one of the very few soup kitchens that had existed. She brought her five children with her. By the time she got to the soup kitchen, she was you no. Know, literally about died. She actually told the person running the kitchen, Arthur Dre, that she needed him to take her children because she was going to die. And this is late in the famine, and Dre had run this soup kitchen, had thousands of people. And he was at the end of the day, and he was just kind of stressed out and didn't want to deal with it. And so he said, I can't take them. I'm sorry, we're full. He probably dealt with this question a hundred times a day. Um, she begged him and begged him and finally said, okay, well, I'll take and you can imagine the panic that she felt as she's trying to figure out which of her five children she's going to save and which of them she's going to condemn to death. And in this case, too, condemn to death that she may even have to see. So she chooses her two, and as the story goes, 
one of the small children who is just barely able to speak has suddenly understood that they have not been chosen. She reaches up and pulls on her mother's skirt and says, no, mama, please pick me too. Um, so Dre collapses, apparently, emotionally distraught at what he's understood that he has done. And he takes them all in and sends the mother off. Um, and he walks down to Beirut after his day there and finds her dead along the side of the road. And I remember reading that in an archive and I had to put the book down, put the paper down and kind of push it away from me. Um, I gave it back to the archivist and said, I, I'm sorry, I can't be back here for another week. Um, I went and I spent some time with my kid and you know, it was, it's even now difficult to talk about that, even just kind of picturing that sort of experience. Um, so it's difficult to write about this sort of topic. Um, it really does hit you, um, even a hundred years in the future in a very different context. What kinds of statistics did you use in this research? What were the challenges involved in locating and interpreting them? When were the statistics published and released? How did you engage with questions of trustworthiness and reliability and objectivity in regard to the numbers? So there are very few statistics, and the statistics that do exist are not really ones that one can trust. Um, we're talking about a large-scale catastrophe that took place over three and a half years. So the famine begins, you know, most people kind of estimate roughly around kind of mid-1915 and extends off until November of 1918. You can say it extended even past the war in terms of sort of kind of reverberations that take place afterwards as well. Um, but this is a long time, and this is a very large area that is mountainous and you know, doesn't have a lot of real, you know, strong access to basic statistics. So things like, say, death tolls are absolutely impossible to estimate. Um, people ask, you know, how many people died during the famine? And the question, you know, is valid. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't really have a good answer. Um, you've heard, say, something as low as around 70,000. Um, if you kind of reverse estimate based upon 1921 French census with the censuses taken in the mountain prior to that, you get maybe about 80 to 89,000 deaths. Um, but you have other estimates coming in in 250,000 or more, which is well over half the mountain's population um, and a significant chunk of the area that would become Lebanon in the years after the war. And no, the numbers don't really mean much other than, I guess, kind of giving a value to the sort of suffering that was taking place. Uh, when it comes to death tolls, I would say that they're highly unreliable. And I kind of am very hesitant to use any of them. Um, we do have some statistics from the health situation there. Um, in the mountain, you had Hussein Bey Mohideen, who was the um, director of public health in Mount Lebanon. And as part of this sort of kind of grand compendium of knowledge about Lebanon that was published by the Ottoman authorities in 1918, he gave some pretty fantastic discussions of the health statistics that they gathered in 1917. Um, you know, for instance, roughly how many people the government recorded, you know, getting sick and dying of a whole range of conditions. We have a very detailed estimation of the typhus epidemic that broke out and was reported from 1917, um, or at least from March 1917 to the end of the year. Um, and those statistics are fantastic if you consider them to be valid sources, and they are in many respects, but we also have to assume that they're not recording every single thing that was taking place. You're getting estimations based upon the people treated in government clinics and the information that we're able to gather from you know, public health authorities. Um, in that respect, they could be potentially useful because you might know, for instance, like say, you know how many people were sickened by typhus in 1917, we know how many who died of typhus as a result of that, and then we can kind of come up with a decent case fatality rate. 
um, and can estimate maybe how much impact typhus may have had or why it was so scary for people during the war. Um, and typhus was really one of these great monsters that people would talk about in the war and in the years afterwards. Um, but when it comes to statistics, you have to kind of take them you know, as, I think, representations in certain cases of what information people had on, the, on hand. Um, or in some cases, especially when you're talking about death, um, the sorts of information that people want people to understand when they're writing about the war. Because death tolls aren't just you know, giving you a number of people who died. You know, death tolls themselves have meaning. To say that 100,000 people died in the famine means something different than, say, 250,000 people dying in the famine. Now, the impact of those two different numbers is very, very different. Um, and even if they don't reflect an actual reality of the situation or a reality that we can know, um, the general sort of, I guess, literary value almost that they convey is actually quite important for us as we go back and analyze, you know, how people understood the famine and how they remember it. Can you comment on the restrictions placed on those who quote unquote deserved humanitarian aid and assistance? What were the rules imposed can you explain the phenomenon of triage in distributing aid to those in need? So much of the question of triage relates to the um, the American the, the American mission or the Syrian Cross and College slash Red Cross um, aid programs that um, had come to be even at the very beginning of the war. Um, some of these, especially through the, the Red Cross, had been operating in you know, the city of Beirut as early as kind of late 1914, um, when you had you know the shutdown of the ports um, as a result of the Entente blockade, you know, putting lots of people out of work. Um, so people needed direct assistance or some job relief. Um, but the problem, of course, is when you have many, many people needing relief and you have a finite amount of aid to give. You know, there's only so many jobs you can give only so much money that one can then dedicate to food resources. You need to be selective about who you're getting. Um, so there's a triage process with the Americans in particular very, very early in the war. And this is a bit different from other ones. Um, for instance, the Maronite Church um, and other sort of kind of uh, um, religious charities, which distributed lots and lots of aid throughout the country, um, in general, people requested aid and they needed it, they would be given aid. Um, but this became very difficult because one could very quickly exhaust one's resources because you didn't know how long the war was going to go on. In 1914, people thought the war was going to be over by Christmas in Europe. Um, there's no estimation about how long this war would last, and by the time you get to 1916, there's not a lot of aid pulling in because people are generally too poor to then you know, donate to these organizations. Um, the Ottoman government had different sorts of restrictions. Um, Rather than the triage process, you know, if one was needy, they could then say enter into some charitable um, sort of like say, especially workshops for women or orphanages for children. Um, these are mainly funded after 1917. And the key thing really with the Ottoman authorities or the sort of municipal ones is that they, for the most part, tried to restrict access to women and children. Um, the things like, say, basic soup kitchens in the city might be accessible to men or, say, um, you know, in the city of Beirut, the um, Omar Daouk, who is the municipal head, and tried to allow people access to things like, say, to purify their clothes, to kill you no know, lice eggs, for instance, to slow the spread of typhus. Uh, but for the Americans, it was slightly different because you know, they not only had the sort of desire to restrict aid to only those people they could save, uh, but the implication really was that in doing so, they wanted to save the right people. And if you look at some of the missionary correspondence, especially from 1917 to 1918, 
um, they began working out plans about exactly what it meant to be worthy of this aid. And now the worthy poor is something that you know, goes back you know, quite a way. It was very keen as a part of the sort of 19th century and early 20th century kind of notion of charitable or uh, charitable giving and you know, what charity did to the people who received it. Um, the main goal really was, and I, to take this from the words of the people who wrote them themselves, is to ensure that you know, they'd not come out of the famine finding that the unworthy had had died and to survive the worthy. So things such as, you know, being a beggar would automatically disqualify you. Um, if someone was a, had engaged in some sort of sex work, had some sort of disreputable profession, they could be, you know, cut off. If they were a burden upon others, then one can interpret this in a couple of different ways. Um, they didn't explicitly say someone who's disabled or elderly, um, but people did note that they didn't necessarily want the elderly weighing down, um, you know, the roles of people who would be receiving things. Um, if people refused to work, they could be rejected. Um, if someone had something called an evil disease, and this you could probably interpret as being something like syphilis, which was rampant during the war because of the widespread numbers of soldiers and increase in prostitution by women who, in many cases, didn't have access to other sort of social support. Um, so to keep their families alive, people would engage in prostitution in order to, you know, kind of maintain themselves and their, their loved ones. Um the end result of this really, though, is the triage process, instead of saving those who are the neediest, save the people who were, I guess, most fitting of the sort of ideal survivor in the eyes of the humanitarians. Um, and in many cases, this would privilege people who might have been in better circumstances, the middle classes, the more educated. Um, and in that sense, I kind of regard it almost as a sort of you no know, social engineering project um, to ensure that the worthy survived while the unworthy would be kind of flushed out as Lebanon tries to rebuild itself in years afterwards. What does your research reveal about the anthropology, aesthetics, and phenomenology of death? When we look at something like famine, it's you no know, people who are writing about that. Um, you know, Edward Nickley was a professor at the Syrian Protestant College, later became the AUB. And in his, in his you know, diary, he would write things like, say, you know, like, have you ever seen a starving person? I hope you never may, is something that is indescribable. Um, the way that starvation affects the human body is, you know, unbelievable to people who look at it. Um, it's horrifying. Um, the starving wander the streets, you know, going through the garbage, trying to survive. They, of course, can't wash themselves. And in certain cases, you know, cleanliness is not even a consideration if basic survival is the main thing on their mind. And one thing that is repeatedly mentioned in the sources is the impact of these sort of kind of horrific, almost bestial images that... Um, kind of course through people's minds, they look at these starving individuals around them. Um, so the starving dead in particular, um, to some extent, were you know, both very present in the lives of people. Um, you'd have descriptions about, say, walking you know, from, like, say, one's house to work and back and seeing 10 dead bodies per day. Um, you had carts that would circle the city three times per day at the height of the famine, collecting bodies off the streets, which would then be either disposed of in mass graves at the south of the city, um, or dumped into the sea. And other large cities like Tripoli would experience the same thing. In the mountains, you had larger towns like LA where they would collect the bodies and throw them over cliffs to keep the hyenas out of the town. Death was just a part of everyone's daily existence. Um, and for people who you know, lived with it and who lived in with the threat of death, it was something that they had to deal with. If a loved one died, of course, you don't necessarily want the carts taking them. Um, this is for, say, the bodies that might be kind of anonymous you no know, migrants who had you no know, bond up in the city died in, you no 
without any sort of support and then had to be dealt with by the municipalities. Um, so people who could would try to help the people that they loved to have some sort of kind of like, you know, final sort of covering that might preserve their dignity as much as they could at that point. Um, but in a general sense, for the people who observed this, and most of the, the stories that we get from the, the famine era and most of the sources come from people who are relatively you know, protected from it. When they looked at the world and they saw this death around them, though for them this was a completely horrific thing, and the bodies of the dead themselves kind of added on to this horror. Um, the visual sort of kind of disgust that came from death um, also was manifested in sort of fear that the dead bodies may then contaminate the living. Um, fear of, especially when cholera was um, present, fear of typhus being spread from the clothing. Um, so the increase in death essentially also kind of matches with this increasing sort of aversion to suffering, as aversion to starving people around them. Um, which seems to have come out of, in part, guilt, in part because of the sort of kind of threat of typhus spreading from, like, say, you no know, person-to-person transmission from the lice, um, and also just because, you no, know, the dead were, you know, in essence, horrifying um, to the living around them. Um, and so this, especially for the starving dead, made dealing with the death not necessarily something that was tragic or sad, um, but something that was kind of a sort of bureaucratic necessity. I mean, it's very dehumanizing as many of the aspects of, you know, kind of administrative management of the famine wound up being. Who was Georges Huri Al-Makdisi? He was a professor at the Syrian Protestant College at the time. Um, and he was one of the local professors um, the Arabic literature pro- uh, program there. Um, and he gives us one of the best personal memoirs of the war. Um, it was written in Arabic, and it was written, you know, very soon after the war and had a couple of different reprintings. Um but Mactasy is very interesting because he's very self-reflective as he writes this. Um, the amount of space he dedicates to the famine is relatively short, actually, given the book's you know, little over, I think, uh, 150 pages or so. Um, but as he talks about the famine around him, he's very descriptive. He's a beautiful writer, um, and he uses you know, constant illusion, um, and his narration of the famine itself, um, in some cases, is haunting. Um, you can see the sort of all his own personal experiences as he tries to rationalize how he's understanding what he's seeing that um, around him. Um, you no, know, he had these wonderful quotes. You no, know, kind of kind of reflecting upon how the world had changed, and for him, change was a really major aspect of his life at the famine because it seemed to be an entirely comparative thing when he looked back on it retrospectively. Like we talked about you no, know, like where did the, the children laughing and playing in the streets go? Um, you would understand the world as being essentially different because of sort of kind of laugh of the lack of joy that he saw around him. Um, he described the poor around him in excruciating detail, particularly the children. Um, and one thing that was always very tragic for him is to see the sort of kind of the degradation of people who had been in the middle classes prior to the war, um, and to see them kind of reduced to these, in some cases, shuffling figures who had um, essentially no sort of no knowledge or understanding or care for the world around them. And he also gives us a really great understanding about the process of change that people endured as the sort of kind of ongoing traumatization begins to affect them. Um, Kori would write, um, you know, in 1915, you would see a person falling on the streets and everyone would rush to them, pick them up, give them some water, some food, and some dirhams, and wait until they were feeling better, and then they would send them on their way. And so in 1916, you would walk down the streets, you no know, past men, women, and children on either side, you no know, reaching out their hands, crying for help, and you would you know, go on talking as if you didn't see them. And the sort of evolution of people's attitudes towards suffering, their understanding about, I guess, what they could give to the suffering, 
was clear in a couple of sources. And in Mac disease, it was very explicit. It's very rare that you get people actually essentially willing to out themselves in this sort of way. When you're writing a memoir, you can you can show what you want to show and you know, let your readers believe what you want them to believe. And in Mactasi's case, he was very honest about that. Um, I always found that a really important aspect of his uh, memoir in particular. In your opinion, do the terms famine, hunger, and starvation mean the same thing or different things? Are they interchangeable or are they distinct from one another? So it's interesting because in some senses, they'll say famine is a technical term. Um, we can see hunger and starvation as being matters of degree of the same kind of descriptive process. No one can feel hungry. But over time, one can feel hungry for a long time, leading to malnutrition. This can lead to starvation. Um, and during famine, actually, most of what people who are you know, in poverty experience is long-term semi-starvation. Um, it's not necessarily like, say, an acute thing where you just stop eating and you totally waste away. Um, people can subsist in this state for years. Um, and you know, it has terrible consequences for the body, of course. Um, but the hunger is also something that's felt. Now, starvation is a condition of the body, and hunger is the sort of feeling that one feels also when they're starving. Um, hunger is the sort of thing that drives people to eat things that they shouldn't eat. Uh, there's stories about you know, people you know, calling to the streets, you know, picking through donkey dung to pick out the little bits of barley that have been left behind. Um, for many, the donkeys are actually better fed than the people because the donkey's owners could afford to buy grain, whereas people on the streets who would reach the sort of kind of the worst part of suffering couldn't afford to eat anything. And of course, most people didn't get to this point. You know, when famine hits, though, for the most part, people will just either eat less of what they normally eat or they'll adjust their diets to eat things that you know, may be slightly out of sync with their normal sort of you know, patterns. Um, like say, instead of eating wheat, you might eat something like millet. Um, you might, you know, say, shift over to a diet that's more heavy in, like, say, vegetables, um, the seeds, roots, and things like that. You might reduce meat consumption. Um, and for the most part, people can subsist, you know, at a reduced level with this. Um, everyone was, was hungry. Everyone, you know, to some extent, had felt the pinch, uh, except for the extremely wealthy. So famine is, in a technical sense, a kind of grander scale catastrophe. And there are different sort of interpretations of this um, that the economists, um, humanitarians will give about what makes a famine a famine. Um, I agree with Alexis DeWall, who is a famine specialist. Um, he's worked a lot on Sudan in particular, but is, you know, understands famine, I think, from the inside out better than many. Um, famine essentially is defined by the people themselves. And it's something that, you know, often requires a sort of kind of like on the ground understanding of this. So for instance, there's a story about Jamal Pasha, who was kind of great monster of the histories of World War One, at least in Lebanon, Syria, and Palestine. Um, and Jamal was the sort of Ottoman regional governor and the military um, kind of head of the fourth army there. And so he had been making this tour through about Lebanon and the country to ask people how they're doing and just kind of to look and see what was going on. And so um, the story may not have happened. There's a lot of different descriptions from different places. But the gist of it was that Jamal shows up in a village and the village leaders ask, you know, like, you have to help us. There's a famine going on. And Jamal steps back and says, has a mother eaten her child? And the village leader said, well, no, a mother hasn't eaten their child. She says, there's no famine until a mother eats her child. And the implication being, of course, that if there's no famine, there's no aid from the government. So that was it. Um, and it's not always that arbitrary. Um, but in the case of the famine in Mount Lebanon, um, the people defined it very clearly as a famine, and you can see the sort of kind of evidence of this in terms of the high prices, the large amounts of starvation across the uh, society. 
um, increase in things like, say, you know, death in the streets, um, illnesses which then led to deaths. Um, and for the book, I would consider the famine to be generally a context. Um, we think about famine as something that affects people who starved, um, but that's not always necessarily the case. You know, everyone who lived through the famine, to some extent, you know, experienced some aspect of that. They may not have necessarily been hungry, um, but you know, they saw starvation and suffering in the streets. They had to adjust their lives in some way or another as a result of this, and it did traumatize them. Um, so you have degrees of suffering that affect different people in different levels of society. Um, and you know, that context did introduce a level of you know, trauma, be it vicarious or not, um, hunger, suffering, hardship, um, from the bottom of society to the very top. What does your book's title mean? So the title was something that um, we negotiated over for some time. Um, my idea really as writing a microhistory of the famine was to try to make this about as many individual lives as possible. And going back, I guess, to our discussion about what famine is, you know, being a context, um, we can have the macro famine, but within that famine, everyone kind of experiences it in different ways. And we can think about this in our own sort of experience of crisis when we had to deal with the pandemic. Um, you know, we all lived through the pandemic, but you know, those of us who didn't necessarily have to go to work in like say, a crowded kitchen or in some place that could readily expose us to the virus, um, experience it in a very different way than people who might be you know, on the front lines or in contexts where you don't have a lot of, sort of I guess, you know, either administrative, governmental, or medical support systems. Um, so within this broader context, we also have these individual experiences. We have, you know, the crisis that we wake up to in the morning. And so for me, you know, we have the famine world as a whole, but then you have within that individual famine world that people experience. Um, and for me, this is a really important aspect of you know, the book. Um, so um, the sort of subheading of the book, I think, was getting to the aspects of not just like, I guess, the sort of aspects of living through famine as a sufferer, um, was not the only way to live through famine. You know, one can be you know, within suffering at the edge of suffering and still be experiencing this famine um, that affects everyone around you. Can you describe your choice of cover art and cover design? How does it reflect the contents of your book? Yeah, um, that was also very interesting. I didn't actually see the, um, the prior drafts up until the point um, that they'd given me the main one. Um, they actually released this on Stanford University Press blog um, a number of these different sort of kind of evolving ideas about what to do with this. Um, and I think it's actually very interesting. You know, one of the main events that people remember when they remember the famine actually was this massive locust invasion that hits, you know, not just Lebanon, but all throughout essentially the sort of Eastern Mediterranean in 1915. Uh, when it came through Lebanon, people talked about these locusts coming and blotting out the sky. Um, and it was a truly terrifying thing for everyone except for the children. Uh, who seem to have enjoyed, you know, going down and, you know, whacking at them, knocking them into the sea, um, or just kind of having a sort of fascination with, like, say, you know, walking through them and kicking them like leaves. Um, but for everyone else, this was a terrible and terrifying thing. You can see them descending upon farmland and stripping it to the bone. Um, you hear stories about, you know, towns in the mountains gathering together and, you know, as a village, walking, trying to clear the fields of the locusts, you know, you know Know, bang thing like metal pots and pans and try to drive them into this you know, very large uh, trough. They'd fill the trough with um, oil or gasoline, and when the locusts got into that, they would light it on fire. In the end, there wasn't one, much that one could do. If anyone has ever had a garden and tried to keep it away from pests, there's you no know, there's a limit to how much you can protect this, especially when it's you know you're talking about something that extends over hundreds of miles. 
Um, but this is a major sort of event. And I think that the interesting thing about the, the cover as it was designed is you have these locusts that are essentially eating the green of the, the book, leaving behind the white of the letters and the white of things like the, the main name on the back. Um, it's evocative. Um, and it's also a little bit horrifying um, without necessarily, I think, getting to the sort of what I feel are almost problematic and trite aspects of famine um, kind of research sometimes. So we want to see the horrible things. When we talk about horrors of famine, you want to see the horrors of the human body's emaciation and things like this. Um, I don't think that necessarily gives us anything. Um, and, and it, to some extent, reduces the humans who are within that to caricatures or you know, kind of objects that we then look at, gawk at, and try to, you know, to gain shock value from. Um, I think the locusts don't give us that, but it still gives us a sense of kind of like discomfort in a very uncomfortable topic. In what ways did children suffer differently than parents and adults during the famine? So much like anyone else in the famine, this is very class-based. Uh, so there are stories told of you know, wealthy people you know, sending their children to schools and the schools actively went about trying to prevent the children from understanding what was happening. You know, even people whose like families were suffering and dying in the villages, the schools, if they got news of like say a parent dying, they wouldn't tell the children. This. Um, essentially, the kids would go back home for Christmas and understand only then that you know, say their mother had died. Um, and this is kind of a worst case terrible scenario. Um, but the schools considered themselves to be sort of havens in the sort of kind of like the well of suffering around them. So. Um, the UT reports and students saying that they would walk the city streets and they'd see starving people and they'd see these rings of orange on the walls. They'd wonder about this. And you know, later on after the famine, one of the, one of the people had said that he suddenly understood afterwards that the rings are when the starving people had taken oranges and had rubbed off the orange pith, or um, sorry, the orange rind from the outside, which was bitter, to be able to eat as much of the pith as possible without necessarily having to sacrifice that. So many people went through the war pretty isolated from any sort of real trauma and real suffering around them, um, except that they are doing, like, say, some sort of relief work. But for many people, you know, being a child was to be dependent. Um, and it was somewhat tragic because, you know, children survived the famine at a greater rate than their parents did. The women tended to survive at a greater rate than, than men did. And so you have a vast surge of orphan, uh, sorry, orphans across the region, um, in many cases without any sort of support system, you know, going from village to village seeking assistance. And because there were so many of them and many people were unable to give or had an unwillingness to give after a while, you know, many orphans found themselves essentially ostracized by others in society. And for you know, a region wherein you know, protecting the children in particular is such a big thing, this is a major sort of transformation that takes place during the war. Um, children, for the most part, depended upon their parents to provide for them. Um, if they couldn't provide for them, there were very few resources. The state had some, uh, but many of the state's orphanages were only in cities. And because of the poor funding and the lack of understanding about how to take care of this during a time of crisis, um, especially during a time of typhus, you know, some of the orphanages turned into death traps. Um, in the city of Beirut, a number of them were shut down in 1917 and 1918 um, after they had gone through and done a sort of kind of no, no overview of the situation there. Um, and it turns out that you no know, many cases people would bring their children into it, drop them off, their children would die, um, or the orphans would be taken out the streets, and it would not be a place where you'd want people to survive. It was probably better to leave them out of the streets than to put them there. Um, but many children, of course, then had to also take on very adult roles. Um, 
if there's there's a story about uh, Mary Khuni Maluf, who was family moved to Zahle during the famine, and her mother had to go and find work. Uh, her father was away, and so you know, her mother would leave for days at a time. She'd give her one loaf of bread for her and her brothers, and she'd have to dole this out to her brothers over the course of several days often to try to keep them alive. Um, at one point, her mother left and came back, and one of her brothers had died. Um, her other brother died soon after that. No, And this girl was, you no, know, I believe, if I recall properly, about seven or eight years old when it was taking place. Um, to put this on a child is a truly terrible sort of thing to imagine. Um, but people across the region, of course, had no other options. Um, and when it was thrust upon them, um, you have many stories from people like Marin from Ibrahim Khalil Awad, um, who essentially became a laborer on his grandfather's farm. Um, in his mind, I think, to essentially earn his keep at that time. Um, it was not a good thing to be a child if one didn't have means. Can you tell us about Milham Kassim and Jamul Mahmoud? Yeah. So an interesting aspect of the famine is we look back at it, many of the people who were writing about it were you know, educated and insulated from the crisis. And many of the sort of ideas that they had about the famine, especially if they're writing for an audience that needs to understand the traumas and the terrible natures of it, um, is that they kind of increased the sort of like suffering and um, in many cases made it very universal. So... This is a bit of a degrading thing, though, and many people after the war, you no know, is looking back on it, would see the famine as being a sort of source of shame. Um, to suffer in famine is not to, you know, to live well. And so many people would want to kind of distance themselves from that, um, even to the point that they actually changed the statue in Martyr Square, which was initially you know, to recognize the martyrs killed by the Ottoman authorities in um, World War One, but also the martyrs of the famine. Um, from something that represented, I guess, the shared loss of the famine, you know, two mothers holding their dead children, to a much more dynamic statue, um, actually made by an Italian artist, um, that kind of expressed more of the sort of active suffering that was taking place, um, reflecting the martyrs that were hung, not the ones that starved you know, ignominiously to death. So Qasim and Mahmoud were kind of the opposite of this. And I get these stories in, mainly from more oral traditions. So Teddy Khalidi has written about Milham um, Qasim um, in an article he'd done um, with Maisim Sukariya, and uh, there are stories essentially that were told about Qasim being the sort of like bandit, kind of like the Jack Sparrow of the Bekaa Valley, sort of central, uh, kind of between Lebanon and Damascus. Um, allegedly, they had been robbing people, harassing Ottoman authorities, and so many people who remembered stories of Qasim remembered him as this sort of great resistor to Ottoman sort of power. Um, and the irony of this, in part, is because you no know, Qasim does evade capture and execution by the Ottomans, but in some of these stories, he actually befriends Jamal Pasha, the great monster of the the famine, um, and kind of winds up doing these very sort of heroic things, you know, escaping by praying to Ali and you know, being kind of blinked out of like the firing range so he can run away. Um, in some cases, you know, breaking free of his bounds, him pinning Jamal Pasha to the floor with the chair, all very sort of heroic and very masculine sorts of things. These aren't the acts of someone who is suffering during the famine. These are the acts of people who actively resist suffering and you know, fight their way through this. So Jamul Mahmoud was an actual, you know, well, well, Milham was a person too, but Jamul was the grandfather of one of the people that I interviewed for this. And he was fascinating because he was a muleteer uh, or someone essentially who moves the goods and food back and forth into the mountain um, using mules and mules trains. So prior to the war, that was just a very standard job. But during the war, it involved a lot of smuggling because 
getting food into the mountain was restricted by the Ottoman authorities to prevent you know, smuggling and hoarding, which was trying to keep the prices relatively stable. So in Jamul's case, he had to go and smuggle goods in from a neighboring region in Syria called the Hauran. Um, he was Druze, and the people who were in charge of the grain trade there were also Druzes, and so this gave him a little bit of an in there. And usually he would sneak this back into the sort of kind of secret mountain passes near the cedars near the town of Baruch where he lived. So one winter he couldn't get through there because of a massive snowstorm. So Jamul was forced to essentially make his way up to the main pass. Um, but if he had passed through that you know, during the day, the Ottomans would have confiscated the grain, confiscated his animals, and probably thrown him in prison. So he times this you know, for around midnight when he's making this ascent. Um, he gets up there anticipating the Ottomans are all going to be in their little shed keeping warm by the fire. Um, when he gets up to the checkpoint, he sneaks up to see, and everyone's inside. He takes his staff, slides it through the door handles, and you know, silently motions for everyone to come by. And the mule train passes through. He goes to Baruch and essentially saves his family this way. Um, and I found this to be a fascinating story, too, because unlike many of the stories that people would tell about the famine in the books, those sort of kind of retrospective things, those are stories about suffering. And this, the famine was part of it in the sort of contextual sense. Like, they were trying to escape famine by going to get this food. But it really wasn't a story about the famine. It was a story about the people within the famine, you know, overcoming this through cleverness, through bravery, and, you know, coming out on the other side a hero and surviving. Um, this sort of lesson then essentially reflects also onto why they survived in the famine in the first place. Um, and I noticed that when I was looking at many of these sort of kind of stories from within the crisis, and this heroic aspect was emphasized. The suffering might be there, but it really wasn't the main focus. Can you tell us about George Doolittle? George Doolittle was a reverend and humanitarian who had been part of the American mission in Sidon in particular um, the years prior to the war. Um, he was very active in the Red Cross. In fact, in the early days of the war, the Red Cross sent an expedition to the Suez Front essentially to take care of the Ottoman wounded. Um, and we can look at this actually as a kind of gesture to the Ottoman authorities to let them know that just because they were Americans, they weren't necessarily going to be, like, say, supporting the Entente powers um, when the war was going on. And America actually stayed out of the war up until 1916, um, at least in the region, uh, sorry, 1917, at least in the sort of region, and they never declared war on the Ottoman Empire. And to some extent, this was deliberate because of a lot of petitioning that was done by um, the, the Ambassador Morgenthau from Istanbul and a number of people region. Uh, who knew that if the Ottomans and the Americans actually were at war directly, then this would result in all the assistance they were trying to give in the region would go for naught. So Doolittle joined up with this initial, initial expedition um, and was very active in the relief across the region. Um, a number of different sort of kind of kind of like co collaborative efforts were set up between the Ottoman Red Cross, uh, sorry, Red Crescent and the American Red Cross. Um, and Doolittle was the representative that actually had showed up um, at the Ottoman authorities to kind of oversee this in part from the American side. Um, in the latter stages of the war, it was actually his job to go through Mount Lebanon and to try to, you know, give these sort of like overviews of the suffering taking place in different areas. So the most interesting thing about Doolittle is he actually collab kind of took all of the information, all of his experience, and put it together in one large book, which he later called Pathos and Humor and the Wartime Years. And it was unpublished. He essentially wrote several copies to give to his children. Um, and Doolittle in it, because he had such a limited audience, was far more, I think, honest about his own experiences and how it affected him 
and many of the other people who were writing, especially from the American missionary side. Um, many people like Margaret McGilvery, who was the American mission secretary during the war, essentially expelled actually um, towards the end of it. Um, much of what she wrote was intended to get people to donate to nearest relief after the war. And nearest relief brought in literally hundreds of millions of dollars in you know, 1918 money into the region over the you know, years that followed. This was incredibly important, but many of the stories that she told were very sort of particular and very sort of kind of skewed from her perspective. It didn't necessarily you know, portray the missionaries as being weak or having some sort of suffering, whereas Doolittle was very sort of honest about the effects that the famine had on him in particular. Um, the difficult as it was to be a humanitarian trying to push back against you know, a famine that was so much bigger than anything that you could accomplish um, and kept getting worse despite your best efforts. Um, so much like Maxisty, I think that Doolittle you know, gave more of himself than many authors. And so he was a really fantastic source for me as I was looking for these personal experiences. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. On page 106, you write as follows. Though it is tempting to view such firsthand narratives as simple reports of reality, they are more accurately viewed as subjective, often retrospective perspectives, ostensibly nonfiction they had a clear literary nature in their narrative form and in the vocabulary and literary devices they employed to depict a world for their readers. Many narratives were set within a Manichaean world defined by its binaries, good and evil, rich and poor, sufferer and non-sufferer. This world was heavily populated by stock characters, villains, saviors, innocents, victims, wretches, and the like. Even relatively straightforward descriptions commonly, re commonly relied on generalizations, illusion, metaphor, and famine commonplaces. We can forgive this to some extent because it was necessary for writers to selectively choose how to portray a complex event like the famine. It would be impossible to render the whole four-year period in precise detail and even thoughtful accounts of the war were frequently somewhat chaotic in their organization. Can you elaborate on this passage? Um, specifically, when we're describing phenomena such as suffering and vicarious suffering, such as indeterminacy, such as boredom, such as misery, how do you explain that to an audience? How does a first-hand narrative, such as a diary or another first-hand report, convey that to someone else? How do you choose what to narrate and how do you narrate it? How does the writer of a first-hand account choose how and what to narrate? Can you discuss this for us? Yeah. So one thing that struck me, especially as I began seeing these differences in the narratives that are from the sort of secure people within the famine and the people who are kind of within the famine, um, is you get a sense how the audience defines how people describe things. 
You know, when we give an account of something, we have to put it into words. And with something as complex and as long as the stem, and we're talking about something that lasted for four years, essentially three and a half years, and we're going to boil it down to just the famine period. Um, this is an exceptionally long time. You know, imagine you know, three and a half years back what you were doing. You know, and to imagine this kind of like taking place over a long time, many of the writers, when they're describing this, would have to kind of pare this down to a very manageable sort of you know, number of words. And many people who wrote about the famine would write about it almost as a sort of kind of snapshot retrospect. Um, it'd be part of their overall memoir. It, it, the famine might get maybe half a page to two pages. And it's really difficult to describe something like this. And so people kind of round off the edges. You know, you, you emphasize the things you feel people need to know, which were often the horrifying parts. Um, where you give various checkpoints to kind of draw people through. And so when we read through these sources about the famine, um, it's really hard to understand them, you know, beyond, I guess, the information they provide. But you have to kind of look at them as being also reflections of literature as well. And what words do we use to describe these sorts of things? And what do those words, you know, tell us about the people who are writing these things? You know, one of the difficult things about writing microhistory really is kind of getting beyond you know, what these people are putting onto the page to see them writing this in their own you know, home. Um, and it's really difficult, especially the bigger you get here. You know, I guess for the people listening, I guess, think about, you know, how would you narrate your day today? You know, assuming this isn't like, you know, like eight o'clock in the morning or something. So the longer period of time goes, the more difficult it is to try to organize your thoughts and to put this into a sort of coherent plot line, because you need a plot. You can't just have a story that lacks that. Well, now extend this out to a year. How do you narrate a month, a year, or in this case, three and a half years? And as it gets more complicated, as you no, know, say, external pressures like, say, mass starvation, like the traumatization you're experiencing, you no know, affect you, you no. Know, the difficulty in conveying this becomes much more difficult. And so it made me very critical of my sources, not necessarily in the sense that I'm not believing my sources, but in the sense that I have to understand my sources as things produced by human beings and to try to get at really what sort of goal of this is, especially given who their audience might be. Um, and I think this was an important but a really difficult aspect of the famine research. Um, in fact, had I known that this was going to be the result, I probably would not have chosen such a complicated topic in the first place. Uh, but here we are. Can you comment on the phenomenon of homelessness in Lebanon during World War One? Yeah. Homelessness was a complicated thing. Um, you always have homelessness in any society. Um, in Lebanon, you did have charities that would help prevent it. Um, and beyond charities, of course, you had a familial organization that made, so if, say, someone needed assistance, you would have someone to go to. So your, your immediate family, beyond that, your extended family. Um, and kinship networks really bound together the villages and towns and communities. Even within large cities, you know, neighborhoods would be oftentimes comprised of family members or kin in some sort of sense. Um, famine makes that much more difficult, though. And many of the people we see as homeless were actually people migrating into the cities or migrating from place to place, seeking some food or, in many cases, work. Um, the first people within this during the famine wound up mainly being men. Um, Men had a far greater chance of getting you no know, high-paying work. You now, to be a woman, you would be paid one-fourth at best um, what a man might be paid for the most basic level of a job. You no know, man might get, like, say, four and a half piastres per day. A woman might get one. So in some cases, actually, her younger son would get paid more than she would working the same menial job. Um, 
So many of these people wound up in substandard housing or living in the streets. Um, and living in the streets was the worst possible outcome because you're exposed not only to the elements, and it was cold in the wintertime, um, but also you no know, cramps, crowded circumstances. You no, know, you would have a greater exposure to malaria um, as mosquitoes have full access to your body. And malaria was one of these sort of great hidden catastrophes during the pandemic. Um, it's not the sort of thing you want to have when you're suffering through starvation and trying to keep yourself alive, you know, debilitated by kind of racking fevers, um, the vomiting, having diarrhea, having anemia as your blood cells are being broken down by these um, malarial parasites. Um, so it was a really terrible sort of thing. And it was mainly something you would see in the main cities. Um, and this was also exacerbated by the fact you had migration that took place that actually wasn't simply, I guess, based upon homelessness. A migration was something that was actually undertaken by people as a deliberate choice. Um, the wealthy would make their way very early in the famine um, because you know, the cities like Beirut, Tripoli, um, Sidon, Natire, um, seemed to be a bit more stable during times of crisis. People would go there if they had money, and they would rent out homes and you know, begin living there. The problem is that many people who had lived in those homes beforehand, if they were renting them out, um, would be expelled by their landlords into the streets, um, because the people coming in could pay higher rates than they could. So some of the start the uh, sorry homelessness was also in the impact of this kind of migration from the city, sorry, the, the mountain to the city, and then the kind of reverberations that this has across the existing people there. Um, so the majority of the people who wound up dying during the famine, um, by the end of it were probably likely the ones the living on the streets without any sort of social support. Um, so it was commonplace, but for the most part, the people who were homeless were people who had already made a migration and had moved from desperation into greater straits of desperation and were having to try to eke their existence out at that particular time. On page 119, you write as follows. Such linguistic quibbling may seem trivial in light of the severe suffering on the ground. However, such accounts are examples of the discourse about poverty and the starving poor that developed during the crisis in response to widespread suffering and its social effects. To some extent, we can read such accounts as proxies for how the writers understood their own, so their own world, or at least the world that they sought to convey to their readers. While such depictions ostensibly aimed to generate sympathy for the poor, the effects were often anything but sympathetic. Visceral descriptions of taboo-breaking bodily decay filth and stench were plainly evocative, but such portrayals implicitly demeaned those who suffered in the famine while also physically and figuratively distinguishing them from the secure. Such depictions of filth and degradation ultimately had a deep patterning effect. If dirt is simply matter out of place, what does this say about those defined by their filth? As the famine unraveled the pre-famine world and replaced it with a horrific facsimile, those who endured the crisis were forced to revise their understanding of society, often by editing old social constructs or crafting new ones, through which they could better rationalize the horrors that they saw in the social context of the famine, such distinction was further incentive to push the poorest to the margins of society. Can you say more about this for us? Yeah. And the the difficult thing about reading some of these sources is that you get, I think you have a, a sort of initial sort of response to them, and that you kind of feel the people who are writing them are callous. 
that they they don't understand the people suffering or they don't like them. And sometimes that wasn't necessarily the case. So a good example of this is Suleiman Zahir, who was a the sheikh and a sort of a prominent figure in the town of Nabatiyah, which is in what's now South Lebanon. And he would write things about the sort of crisis around him, and he'd use language that was very demeaning. Um, they describe people as, you know, as like scared beasts, um, you know, rushing for food, um, you know, kind of like scattering through the streets, trying to keep themselves alive. And the terminology used was very sort of demeaning and um, and literally bestial in this particular case. Um, he would you know, kind of marvel over things like cannibalism and you know, talk about them in the sources. Um, but when you begin to kind of understand that this is a, a product essentially of time, you know, the longer that someone's exposed to these terrible circumstances, the more difficult it is for them to respond to it like they would have, say, in the beginning. You know, the person who looks at the famine in 1915 and in Mattis's words, you know, would rush out with empathy and try to help someone. You know, by the time he gets to 1918, has a very different response. Um, so the missionary letters were actually fascinating because you get a good sort of kind of like proxy where you can almost see this developing over time. As you know, they report from 1914 are almost the exact opposite of 1918. So they might still be doing very similar activities and are reaching out to help the poor, but the attitudes that people developed over time were you no. Know, in many cases, very self-serving. You, know, you can no longer go to, like, say, do house visits because it's just people complaining about poverty and asking for things. And you know, as a missionary who was there to give out aid, I mean, this was kind of their job. Um, but the ideas that people had also began to shift based upon what they saw around them. And the ideas about who the poor were um, began to change as well. You know, instead of being someone who was sympathetic and in need of assistance, they began to be emotional burdens. Um, the people began... Kind of cutting them off. You hear reports about, you know, say, like there's a sewing circle that would meet, you know, every you know, Thursday in Sidon. And it used to be something everyone would gather from the rich and the poor, and they would sew, talk, and it'd be a nice social event, um, kind of cross class sort of situation. And by 1917, they would talk about essentially kind of splitting this up into two, where the poor, the unwashed, the unmended, um, you know, the people who were described as almost beggars would have to go upstairs so that they would not be a threat to their you know, better kept better fed sisters downstairs. Um, and you can see this essentially in also the sort of social relations that developed, and even in the sort of triage patterns that were, um, the sort of triage decisions that were decided upon by the American humanitarians. Um, it became much more difficult for people to be around poverty at this level because it was emotionally difficult to process. It was physically horrifying to see. And so the sort of constructs of poverty, you know, who was a po impoverished person, what did it mean to be impoverished, shifted from being a sympathetic thing in the beginning of the war to being something that was almost a threat by the end of it. And you can see this then reflected out in how people behaved and how people dealt with other people around them. Um, and it seems somewhat horrifying, but you know, being there in Lebanon at the time that the Syrian refugee crisis was developing, you actually could see this taking place in real time. Um, even in my own sort of responses to the crisis around me, and it was somewhat horrifying when I finally recognize these behaviors um, in my own sort of actions um, as I went about my day-to-day -day business. Um, so it's just, in many cases something that develops kind of unconsciously. Um, you know, a construct is essentially a shorthand way of responding to something without necessarily having to kind of ponder through it. Um, and in this particular case, I mean, this has you know, direct sort of impacts on people's day-to-day -day interactions and you know, how they you know, go about their business even, which for humanitarians could be disastrous. Can you comment on the spread of typhus in Lebanon? 
during the times chronicled by your study? I think this is a fascinating situation because it was something that allegedly had come during the war. Um, in fact, the word for it that was used a number of times, the Hamulaskaria, is actually the word for the, the war fever, the military fever. Um, and we can see that there was probably an outbreak that began in 1913 and 1914 when the soldiers from the Balkan Wars, um, which had ended in 1913, had come back to the homeland. Um, and we do know that it had been there um, prior to this. Now, there's been some reports um, in a public health survey that was done in Beirut in 1897 um, that listed a number of different typhus cases. And the person who wrote the report actually died of typhus. We definitely know that it was in Beirut at the time. But it had never been epidemic, um, or at least not in recent memory. And so when it began to kind of crop up in response to the social crisis, this is something that began really to scare people. Um, typhus is a devastating disease. You know, at the time, there was some vaccination that could be given for it, but this wasn't widely available. It wasn't seen as a major threat. Um, but when it hits, without any sort of prior exposure, you know, people were you know, ravaged by it. You know, from what we can tell, initially, the case fatality rate of, of it probably was around 30%. The one in three people who get it, roughly, are going to die from it. Um, and you know, while it's really difficult to really kind of ascertain what numbers are correct. Um, we do know that this initial wave was probably the most, well, no, it's not properly, but it's undoubtedly the most deadly. Um, and it came in a couple of different waves. Um, it first became epidemic in late 1915 up until about mid-1916. And it dies down a little bit again as you get into the kind of late summer and fall. In 1917, you have it rising again late 1916, around December and November. It peaks around essentially March to May. And in this, you have the most number of cases and the most number of deaths. And curiously enough, it seems, as the epidemic went on, and we have some evidence of this from the public health records from Mount Lebanon, um, the famine over the course of June and July became less deadly. Though many people would get it still, but it would kill far fewer of them. Um, there are a lot of different ways we can interpret this. You know, perhaps they had had it before, and so now we had some sort of protection. Um, or the disease itself essentially began to mitigate its severity as it went on. Um, in 1917, it was... No, had a case fatality rate of about 19.3. So instead of you no know, one in three people dying, yet about you no know, one in five people dying. And by the time 1918 comes, um, a number of people essentially had kind of said that it was no longer really that deadly a consideration. So things like typhoid, dysentery, um, malaria were probably the bigger killers then, um, along with tuberculosis, which was kind of the sort of hidden menace that people had to deal with you know, during the war and afterwards. Um, but it was terrifying. It was something that people feared more than any other disease during the war because it was novel and because it was spread by lice. It was very difficult to sort of ascertain when you were going to catch something or if you brushed up against someone, is this going to be the way that you, you catch the louse that's going to send you to your grave? Um, so those sorts of things, I think, made it unique amongst the diseases that were spreading during the famine period. On page 95, you write as follows. For these secure observers... The effect of other people's suffering was itself a form of trauma, like secondhand smoke. They absorbed the suffering of those around them merely by their proximity to the crisis, and like any carcinogen, it gradually changed them from the inside out. Unfortunately, the, such secondhand suffering was not openly discussed in many sources, as genre did not encourage emotional sharing in traditional Arabic memoir forms. And American writers in the war's aftermath were engaged in a sort of heroic myth-making 
that left little room for ambivalence or weakness. Nevertheless, the hints of trauma bled through the texts of many of the contemporaneous writings on life in the crisis. Even when the trauma was expressed, technical issues often prevented writers from clearly conveying their feelings since the simple vocabulary they had at their disposal appeared insufficient to depict the magnitude of what they experienced. It may have been possible to speak about the measurable effects of trauma like compassion, fatigue, avoidance, and other concepts that help systematize our understanding of trauma and its pathologies in current psychological research. But of course, writers at the time would not have had access to the vocabulary to describe the psychology of trauma, let alone the ways that they internalized and interpreted their own trauma. They did, however, consistently note how impossible it was to really convey the feeling of being traumatized. Can you elaborate on what you're referring to here? How do you describe the ineffable? How do your sources describe the ineffable? Um, how do you adapt your language to engage with these sources? How does this affect your own sense of trustworthiness and your own simultaneously being a historian, but also a reporter, so to speak? Yeah. This is one of the more difficult aspects of the process because you have to essentially avoid putting ideas into the heads of the people you're looking at as you're looking for their basic sort of understanding of their own situation and the basic experience of it. You have to try to get beyond just you know what they're saying. You have to get to sort of try to get an understanding about what it is to be there in their shoes. Um, and the fascinating thing really about the idea of ineffability with this is that they were very sort of like keen on saying that it's impossible to describe this and then immediately go about trying to describe it as cleanly as they can. Um, but you can see the sort of like difficulty with this. And one of the more fascinating sources I found was uh, Friedrich Bliss was a member of the Red Cross and a member essentially of the, the Syrian Protestant College community after coming back up uh, from Palestine um, when the war began. And he writes you know, a memoir or so kind of retrospective about his time in the war that he you know, kind of put together on, you know, he typed it up, tried to organize it, and never really published it from what I can tell, and left it sitting in the Syrian Protestant College archives, now the American University of Beirut. Um, and in it, you can see the sort of, like, difficulties that he had had, and he starts off essentially describing, you know, how impossible it is to understand and to describe four years of crisis. You know, he describes essentially little snapshots of this. You know, describing people he sees on the streets, you know, an old man you know, lying there, you know, kind of like trying to keep himself sane, you know, children suffering in the streets, you know, a woman holding out her baby, begging for him to help keep him alive, um, the sorts of traumatic things that he himself has had. And he talks about the sort of nature of this. You know, how, can, how can we ourselves be traumatized by this when it, you know, our experience is best vicarious? Um, and as he's describing these sorts of things, you can see the difficulties he had. In fact, as he's editing this, he's crossing out entire passages, moving one thing from one area to the other, um, as if, you know, what he's writing essentially is difficult to kind of like, to come to some sort of kind of understanding of even the basic structure that he should be putting out there for the readers. Um, and so, you know, reading through these sometimes, I think trying to understand them as pieces of literature and, and sort of understanding the sort of motivations of these writers was an important part of trying to understand know what they were trying to say as I was you know interpreting their experiences um, and it was a difficult sort of thing I mean you're at best looking through things as proxies 
Um, and there's a lot of limits in terms of what you can gain from this. Um, but I feel as though in order to access the lived experience, you need to be able to kind of understand this as close as you can, or at least kind of like to give the sort of difficulties um, to show, I guess, the potential depth of what you're looking at. Uh, but I think setting famine for this reason, if you're going to try to do a microhistory, especially of a crisis that is, you know, largely communicated through memoir, um, it makes it very difficult because memoir in particular is not the most honest of mediums. So, um, so this is this puts all limitations, I think, on on what you can get at and how you have to look at it. Um, can you elaborate on the role of rumors as a form of communication in Lebanon during World War One? What problems of miscommunication manifested through uh, the interpretation and reinterpretation of rumors? How how could you, as a researcher, study rumors? Um, what do rumors teach us about censorship, distrust of government sources, and about the horrendous things that were taking place? Yeah, I think that much of the information that was conveyed during the famine period um, was conveyed the same way that many people got it before. This was through kind of discussions from people, news would come in, and this would then be disseminated throughout the rest. There's information networks that just kind of existed as a basic way of conveying information. Um, but during the war, this is much more important because the Ottomans censored everything heavily because, you know, for the Ottoman government, World War I was existential. Now, this was something that if you lost this war, if you lost the hearts and minds of the population, then when the aftermath of the war came, though, there's a good chance that the Ottoman Empire would no longer exist. Uh, so Ottoman censorship, which was already quite strict in the years before the war, increased dramatically. A number of newspapers were shot down. Many of the people who were executed as martyrs in 1916 were actually newspaper editors. And so to gain access to information, you know, to rely upon official sources or journalistic sources meant you know, trusting a government that didn't really inspire a lot of trust. And many people, especially as the war went on, felt a great antipathy towards the Ottoman authorities as well. So, you know, this made it, you know, I guess more people more inclined to think to believe the things that went on around them. And in part too, because many of the things they saw on the street were horrifying, the rumors that passed to them that tended to be worse and more horrifying were things of either fascination. And the Petrum Sorokin, who you know, was a sort of early sociologist of crisis, um, that talks about how, you know, in famine, you know, people's minds are increasingly focused upon famine. If you're starving, your focus is going to be on food and survival. If you're not starving, but just seeing the famine around you, your focus becomes the crisis. And we can think about, I guess, back in COVID and doom scrolling or checking the daily sort of numbers you know, every morning or several times per day. Um, but the problem, of course, with rumor is that none of it is really reliable. You know, it's essentially like a very large game of telephone where one person conveys information to another person, conveys it to another person, and then you know, literally hundreds of miles away, information is then sent across. In many cases, you know, with the sort of coloring of people's own sort of perceptions and interpretations added onto it. In fact, I think many of the reasons why we see very similar sort of famine constructs evolving over the course of time is that the information streams tend to be the same. The same news passes in, and though people who reported upon it, in many cases, get very skeptical about this. Um, you know, people say, no, rumors abounded, none of them true. Edward Nickley made some wonderful comment. I've missed up the percentages in my head right now, um, but he essentially said, no, these are the days when we believe um, 
So 25% of what we hear, 50% of what we see, and sorry, 50% of what we ourselves say, and 75% of what we see. So the sense was that the world itself was not an easy thing to understand, um, but people still needed to understand it, um, which made it very difficult because then when you tell people about it and you convey this information, often secondhand, thirdhand, or worse, what you're then doing is essentially watering this down with your own perceptions, and in many cases, your own fears and your own interpretations of the situations, rather than simply conveying facts. How many people died of famine in Lebanon during World War One? How many people experienced famine yet survived? And how do you, as a scholar, differentiate between direct and indirect experiences of famine? Yeah, I mean, I would say that everyone in the region experienced famine. You experience it in different ways, of course. I mean, the people who are dying on the streets experience it directly in the worst possible way. Um, and this scales up, of course. You know, like any sort of thing, you have the binaries portrayed in the sources, but then the reality is, which is much more complicated when you actually you know, live it. Um, most people survived the famine. Um, the people like you know, Edward Nickley would report that the rumors in 1917 suggested that 70% of Mount Lebanon had died already. Um, rumors after the war suggested over 50% of the population died. Um, we know that it wasn't that. Um, if you calculate things out based upon the census data after the war versus the census data before the war, it was some kind of manipulations to accommodate for the sort of size of greater Lebanon that was formed in 1920, um, you get around 80,000 people dying, which I think is an underestimation. Um, but of course, it's also not 250,000 people or more than that. Um, the population of Mount Lebanon during the war is probably around 350,000 people, um, according to contemporary scholars writing about this in 1918. Um, the official government data says a little bit over 400,000, but you had massive migration prior to the war. Um, you had people who refused to participate in the censuses, so you have a lot of numbers that don't mean a lot. Um, and my main understanding of famine and death tolls in particular is that when we try to focus our energy on something like a death toll. It's really kind of a shorthand way of saying that things are really bad. You know, the greater the death toll, the worse this crisis was, or at least the worse we intend for people to understand it being. Um, but if you read the famine, not as a sort of quantitative disaster, but as a qualitative experience, like I was trying to do, um, it doesn't really matter, I guess, how many people died. No one can you know, have a famine in which there are very few deaths, but much suffering. Um, and you know, with Lebanon, you had a combination of the two. The suffering was intense. We don't know how many people died. It was, you know, within Mount Lebanon, it varied from village to village. You know, some villages lost, you know, very few people, maybe 10%. Um, you know, some villages lost 30%, and some villages disappeared entirely. Along the coastline, you now within Beirut, there's estimations of over 45,000 people dying, the majority of them being from Mount Lebanon, as you no know, refugees from the famine. Um, but in the end, we know that suffering took place on a vast scale. And to get past the numbers and get to the people themselves, I think, is the really important thing that you know, we have to do as scholars. You know, not to forget that these numbers each represent something, because you know, conceptually, 100,000 deaths doesn't really have any more meaning than, like, say, 150,000 deaths, despite the fact that that is a vast number of people you know, in between there. Um, for me, really, the sort of personal sort of experience and the suffering that took place is the thing that mattered to me. To understand that personal experience um, really gives us a sense of what the famine meant and why it's important. In what ways did women suffer differently than men during the famine? So women 
in many cases were put in a really difficult situation. Um, many people in, say, in Mount Lebanon, especially along the coastlines as well, um, had had the male members of the family go off to, you know, try to earn a living off in the sort of kind of the West, um, the Mahjar is what they called it. Uh, many people went to America, many people went to Argentina, Brazil, um, Europe, even Egypt, um, places where you know, vibrant new economies were able to kind of generate new income. And so remittances made up a significant portion of Mount Lebanon's GDP and the coastal GDP prior to the war, over 40% of it. Um, when the war began, though, the Ottoman authorities shut down any sort of transfers in and out of the country via normal sort of the means. This usually meant going through the London banking systems because the Ottoman bank was controlled by the British and the French as a result of a sort of debt um, reconciliation situation from the 1870s. So this meant that anyone who was trying to send money in to support their families couldn't do so. Um, so they also couldn't come back into the country because the blockade had prevented a ship from coming in. Um, women had a far smaller capacity for earning money than men did. Um, they're, in essence, because of the structures of society, forced into a state of dependency on the men in their lives. This either meant their husbands or their fathers or their husband's family. Um, so many women who were forced into this they would go and try to seek assistance from their families. This wasn't always very easy, and it also exposed women to potential for, like, say, suffering, neglect, even abuse if they were forced into their family households and, you know, there was resentment or a potentially, you know, kind of domestically difficult situation with family members or, let's say, one's in-laws. Um, so many women were also then forced to try to find assistance on their own. Uh, once their money ran out, you know, you have stories about people trying to strip their houses down, and as these sole supporters of their families. Um, these can be mothers, these can be sisters, and it's been an incredible burden upon them to deal with their younger siblings. Um, and not just you know, economic, but also emotional. And you have to keep people in your family alive because this is upon you. Um, and some of the most horrifying stories of the war, in fact, in part come from this sort of desperate need. Um, in a couple of different cases of cannibalism were actually confirmed, and one of the most you know, well-known ones was couple of sisters up in the region of Tripoli. Um, their parents had died and they had several younger siblings to keep alive. Um, so they couldn't work because they're just teenagers. And so what they wound up doing was having their brothers lure children back in from Tripoli. When they came in, they would kill them, you know, strip their clothes from them, give the clothes to their siblings, and then they would you know, butcher them and eat them. Allegedly, they would also boil the bodies for fat and sell that on the markets in Tripoli, which um, was possibly another way of kind of making the story more horrific for the people who were reading this. Um, they only found them because one of the brothers was walking through the streets and you know, one of the mothers of one of the missing children had identified the clothing and followed them back when they found the bodies, number of children dumped in a well. Um, so the sisters are demonized in all the sources because, of course, cannibalism is horrible and you know, the sort of kind of most horrific thing that one can imagine doing kind of separates you from humanity as a whole. But one thing that struck me, too, is that these were just teenage girls forced into this terrible situation. And the choice they made was certainly not a good one. Um, but you can see the effort that they were going to that inspired this, um, no sort of horrific sort of decision on their part. Um, and this is something that also reverberates into many other ways that women you know, were forced to essentially keep themselves alive, in many cases doing things they never would have considered prior to the war that stripped them of their honor in the eyes of their um, you know, their contemporaries and people around them, you know, engaging in acts of prostitution, essentially, or just, you know, essentially having sex with someone 
you know, transactionally to gain things like, say, food, you know, something to keep you alive or keep your family alive. Um, in a time of famine, this was a matter of necessity and a matter of existential sort of need. Um, and it's interesting because different people, when they analyze, especially the sexual aspect of this, um, some would actually look at this and be very sympathetic to it. Um, they might feel pity rather than derision or kind of, you know, kind of to blame the women for it, especially if it meant keeping alive, you know, younger members of the family. Um, but there were definitely unique challenges that women faced in the war simply because of how society structured them in relation to, you know, both themselves and the people around them. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a very difficult thing, I think, to finish a book and then to have to contemplate life after it. Um, this was a long-term project, and getting it done was a huge emotional relief, I'd say. Um, my next efforts are beginning to kind of shift towards the aftermath. Now, what happens when crisis ends? Um, we have a little bit about the sort of aftermath of the war, but a lot of this goes to the sort of political consequences. And so um, I'm going to begin looking towards that and also begin looking towards, I guess, the way people, people remembered the crisis in the aftermath. Um, we're in an era wherein the very few oral histories that we have you know, transmitted through families are going to begin to fade. And so one of my goals is to try to begin to capture these as well. Um, so I'm you know, putting together some research projects that will hopefully be able to look, kind of look into that as years come as I also wrap up a few additional sort of kind of final projects related to this initial project. I wish you the very best of luck in all your upcoming and forthcoming pursuits. Thanks so much, Ari. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. I feel absolutely grateful for the time we spent in dialogue today and can hardly thank you enough for your generous and erudite responses in all the topics we covered and all the subjects we conversed about. I appreciate that. Thank you. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'm Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books in Middle Eastern Studies podcast. Today I've been in dialogue with Tyler Brand. He is Assistant Professor of Near and Middle Eastern Studies at Trinity College, Dublin. We have been discussing his newly published book, Famine Worlds, Life at the Edge of Suffering in Lebanon's Great War, published in Palo Alto, California, by Stanford University Press, 2023. Thank you.